you know, a good person with an okay business plan is going to do an awful lot better than an average person with a great business plan. Welcome to the EIS Navigator, a podcast for UK venture capital. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. In this episode, we invite back Harry Hartfield, who's senior partner at Leisure Investing Specialist Edition Capital. With environment being much improved since our last conversation, we chat about where the sector is now, when exits will return, and why profitability matters more than ever. If you joined the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe through all good podcast services or follow the link in the show notes. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiry.harmandco.com. So as far as we do, enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the podcast, Harry. Thank you very much for having me again. Very kind. Yeah, it's really good to have you back. So if anyone's keeping check, you were previously here on episode 65, which is about 18 months ago. Um, but not everybody will remember that. So as you, maybe we can get to know you a little bit again. So do you want to tell us how you became involved in Venture Capital? Yes. Yes, I certainly do. Um, God, I really hope I gave the same answer last time. Imagine if it was completely different. <laughs> Very unhelpful. Um, by accident is the sort of truth of the matter. Um, uh, the, the, the firm I work with, or for the, the firm that I helped set up, Edition, um, we kind of, I don't think very many of us came through a kind of fairly traditional background, but um, we're leisure sector specialists, and, and I come from a leisure background. So my father was a, is a music promoter, uh, and I worked on music festivals and uh, picnic concerts and all sorts, uh, all throughout my, not throughout my entire childhood, I mean, I wasn't, you know, working as a five-year-old, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly from my mid-teens and, and then through university. And, and I sort of got to the end of university when I'm not quite sure what I want to do. Um, and I got myself a job uh, at an investment firm kind of providing some sector expertise, particularly on the production side of things, and realised that whilst I was okay at the production side of things and cost control, so on and so forth, I, I was really quite passionate about doing deals. Um, and... I stuck around for long enough that people gave me a bit of a chance and worked my way up. Uh, and I was at um, Ingenious, which was my first firm I worked for for about four years um, with the team that I'm currently with. And then we, we left and we sent petition. So it was sort of a happy accident that I kind of fell into an area that could be useful to a venture capital fund. And I've taken it from there. Excellent. So you mentioned now, or with Edition, or you, rather you started Edition. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about what Edition is and what they do? Yeah, so um, at its heart, we are leisure sector specialists. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we, we try not to be particularly pigeonholed into just being fund managers. Um, so we set up the business back in 2015 to really try and be a conduit between the leisure sector and finance. Um, and part of the reason for that was there is a lot of small businesses run by really passionate entrepreneurs who don't speak the same language. Mm-hmm. You know, they talk about, particularly if you, let's take a, a, a second, let's take live events. They talk all about, you know, the bookings, the, the branding, the attendees, the tickets. And very rarely is there a lot of talk about margin control and EBITDA and kind of long-term capital appreciation. And it was that ability to sort of sit there and, and, and almost be a translator between those with capital to deploy and mm-hmm. those with fantastic businesses but just didn't know how to talk to them that, that kind of gave us the idea for addition. We've been doing it um, to a greater or lesser degree as venture capital trust managers at Ingenious, but we, we kind of felt that we were, we were missing something there. We, we wanted to be a little bit more free to go and invest in what we felt was the right spaces to be investing into. So we set up Edition um, partly as a an investment house, partly as an advisory house, and that's what we've done. And we've worked with all sorts um, from charities wanting some help with their kind of uh, commercial exercises in, in the leisure space through to private equity funds who wanted expertise in a certain subsector through to our kind of flagship fund, which is the Edition EIS fund, um, and everything in between. And it's, it's, been, it's been an interesting journey. You know, we've had our ups, we've had our downs, but on the whole, it's been, it's been fantastic fun. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and I think the last time we spoke a lot about some of those challenges you maybe had historically, because um, we came out of a pandemic that clearly had a big effect. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, you know, well, well prospects of the economy perhaps aren't ideal. They're, they're a lot better than maybe they, maybe they were when we spoke last. Um, how do you think leisure investing, sort of, or investing in the leisure sector feels now? It's a really, it's a difficult one. Um, I think that the challenge with leisure investing at the moment is getting, in many respects, is getting people comfortable that the leisure sector is back. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think part of the battle is that the the sector as a whole um, isn't particularly good at at blowing its own trumpet. Um, We have um, often got... Uh, industry bodies, um, I, I don't want to name names particularly, mm-hmm. but industry bodies who seem to see it as their view to try and get the government to reduce business rates, to reduce whatever particular tax they're looking for, which is great, fantastic. We all, we all appreciate that actually we do need those businesses, but, but ultimately they're not very good about shouting about the amount of employment the, business, the sector makes, the fact that we are back post-COVID, the fact that we are doing really good numbers. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you get this generalised impression, particularly when you're talking to people outside of the space. It's not, you know, if I'm talking to a private equity fund who's principally investing within media or leisure or kind of consumer goods, they get it. They see it day in, day out. If I'm talking to a high net worth who might be a fintech investor normally and they want to diversify, if all they read in the press is, oh, tough time to be a pub owner or tough time to be a restaurant owner or tough time to be in music... It's, a, it's an overly negative perce- uh, perce- perception that I think is, is quite challenging. So, I mean, uh, part of what I think our, our job as leisure investors is, is to go and bang the drum and say, look, we are doing fantastic things. Like, you know, there was uh, some press out yesterday, and I think it was um, Sadiq Khan sort of saying, look, the, the leisure sector, hospitality in London is up at post-pandemic levels again already. You know, it's, it's significantly up. So there is good news out there. It's about being more positive and saying, look, if you support us, we can do fantastic things because it's it's one of the sectors I think that this country does really well. Um, you know, it, we're we're world leading at creative businesses. We're not world leading necessarily at widget manufacturing because that's been outsourced. But what we can do is creative really well, whether that's content creation, whether that's service production, whether it's music or TV, all of it. We are fantastic at, and we should be pushing it more than we already do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think some of these things can be overstated. I mean, I mean, there are areas of pubs that I I know from a fund manager have always been challenging, and and mm. pubs have been some some degree economic cycle. But there's been pub and hospitality businesses that went bust in the middle of the last decade when the economy was doing pretty well. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's not, and I think you know. From an investor perspective, we go back to the, the original question that you asked around what's what's the, the landscape effectively like for, for investment right now. Um, I mean, I'd argue that in, in reality, the smart the smart money that's within this space at the moment recognises that it's been a really quite uneven recovery. Um, and uneven recoveries tend to mean there are good opportunities out there mm-hmm. where something hasn't bounced back as quickly or where there's suddenly a niche to be gained from it. So there are... I think it's, it's been interesting to watch um, who's making investments, particularly in the sectors we're you know, very strong on. So things like live entertainment and hospitality. We are seeing more deals, more active spaces, and not just deals where it's a refinancing, but proper new capital coming into the space. Um, but it, it is, it's an uneven recovery and it's, and it's patchy. And, and you're, regardless of where you are in the economic cycle, you're going to have you know, businesses that fail for whatever reason, they're overly aggressive in their expansion plan, they, the margins get crushed by some new pop-up that opens next door or whatever it happens to be. So I don't I don't think it's ever as, as easy as saying this is a terrible time to be investing or this is a fantastic time to be investing. You still need expertise in what you're doing. But I think I think it's a it's a more positive landscape for professional investors in this space and for interested investors in this space than it was 18 months ago, which which was much more difficult. (laughs) Yes, yes. I think we definitely picked up off off the bottom. But you mentioned this unevenness, and I think this is something I definitely want to ask about because it's easy to sort of say leisure as there's the consumer or it's one homogeneous mass, and I don't think anyone's under the illusion that's really true. Where would you say does the evenness as things are 
looking good and where perhaps have things not recovered and, and whether that's leading to, I wouldn't like to say disaster, but, you know, things doesn't, doesn't seem to be recovering, more challenging. Interestingly, it's not, there's an unevenness, unevenness in terms of geography and in terms of, of industries within the sector. And the sector is incredibly broad. Um, you know, people often ask, how do we define leisure? And, and you know, the, the glib answer is leisure is anything you're spending your money on in your spare time. Um, so anything from your Netflix subscription all the way through to your Glastonbury tickets and everything in between. But we try and focus on kind of four key areas. And, and it's, it's, listen, it's very, it's a lot easier to talk about the areas we actually are active in than it is to give opinions on, on other things. But if, if we take two of them, um, hospitality and live entertainment, because they're the two that we do an awful lot in. Um, hospitality has been geographically incredibly uneven. Um, and I think a lot of that comes back to cost of living crisis and, and the impact on the individual's wallet, effectively. And it's it's been interesting. You know, If I look across our portfolio, the businesses that have done really well have tended to be ones that are focused on higher-end consumers who have got more disposable income, who can tolerate a 50, 60, 70, 80% increase in their energy bills because it's a really small portion of their mm. overall day-to-day spending. It's trite, but it is easy to say, it's a lot easier to sell a 12, 15 pound gin and tonic than it is if you're trying to increase the price from, you know, £2.50 to £2.80 on a pint in a pub somewhere outside of a commuter belt because there just is less disposable income. So certainly when we've seen that, you know, we've got a couple of businesses that have done record Christmases, record trade during 2023 and, and even the beginning of 2024. And we've got other businesses in the sector that aren't commuter focused, that are slightly lower price point, that have just not recovered at all post-COVID. Because the economy is at a general macro level has gone from COVID recovery to inflation, to cost of living crisis, to whatever the next problem will be. Because there's always going to be something. And that's, that's putting pressure on disposable income spending. So it's been geographically uneven. And I think in principle terms, that's because this is a horribly unequal country where a lot of the money is saturated and, and stuck in the southeast and major conurbations and not in the rest of the country. Yeah. So so we say, you know, better off and worse off. Does that mean the London, the more prosperous London area has done better than um, sort of the north or whatever? Yeah. Yeah, and in, in broad brushstroke terms, yes, it has. Um, and even even within the same company, you know, we've got businesses where they've got a number of sites in uh, London and a number of sites in the north, and the London sites might be up 20 25% year on year on a like-for-like basis, and the northern sites are down 20% year on year on a like-for-like basis. So I actually get, you know, going back to that point around blowing our own trumpet and, and banging the drum for, for leisure, um, I get it. If it, it, it it's, it's a bit easy for me to sit here and, and, and say, look, actually, it's all going fantastically well. But even within our own portfolio, we've got outliers that are doing badly when they're not in the right location. So it's it's a very mixed bag within hospitality. If you have one eye looking forward, is that where you're saying, well, actually, these northern, you know, simplistically, these northern locations or whatever, their opportunities to re- that could recover in due course? Or are the prospects, you're saying, well, we've got a soft economy. Yes, inflation's coming down, but it's, it's, it's still not, not where it was. Um, they're kind of stuck for the moment. The way we've responded to the unevenness is less around saying, well, we are not going to look at the north or we're not going to look at, yeah. you know, these points. But it, it's, it's been a rebalancing in terms of risk. So we've, we've shifted. From so we used to have a strategy where we put sixty or seventy percent of our funds into uh, post-profit investments, so the slightly later stage, and the remaining amount into pre-profit. And we've changed, and it's now just into post-profit. Mm-hmm. And principally, it's we'll because come back to that. yeah, I'm, I'm sure, but principally, it's it's designed to prevent us worrying so much about does this model work if we take it elsewhere? Because if we're backing a, a you know. A, Manchester-based business or a Leeds-based business or a Newcastle-based business, and they're already profitable, I'm confident at this point, given where we are in the economic cycle, that when it does start to recover, it'll only get better. 
Right. So, so the downside risk sign of gone has there, or is much reduced. Yeah, as, uh, in as much as we can reduce it. Yeah, yeah correct. Um, I, I, you know, I think it's a bit of it, you know, it's a mugs game projecting what's going to happen in two, three years' time. But I am a mug, so that's fine. We, we can. I'm more than happy to project. But I, my my guess would be, um, you know, we, we've seen wages increasing slightly above the rate of inflation. I know, you know. Inflation has come down significantly. I think wage pressures, particularly even at the lower end, um, when we've got increases in um, uh, living wages and national living wages, I think that's likely to continue for a little while. So I think that there will be a slight easing mm-hmm. in the um, the pressure on disposable income. So I, I do think those that have targeted the um, uh, more price-sensitive consumer are likely to see a bit more of a bounce back in the next 24 months. Mm-hmm. Having said that, because of the inherent dangers, what if we have stickier long-term inflation? What if the current issue in the Middle East expands, gets worse, and all of a sudden oil prices go through the roof? Perfectly possible. We're still going to be sticking to our approach of let's focus on higher-end consumers because we think it's just slightly more de-risked. But that doesn't preclude the actual reverse being true that everything will improve and we'll have missed out. But I'd rather miss out and have a lower-risk portfolio for my investors than have doubled down on the risk and, and be proven wrong because then I have my guts for garters. It's an unpleasant place to be in. Yes, no, I can understand that. And you're going to talk about live entertainment and events as well. That one is much more of a positive story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's it's really interesting. I was uh, quite often, so we've done a number of big raises for um, festival investments in the past. Uh, whether we're kind of aggregating together multiple festival operators or looking to buy up European festival operators. And the big question we really often get asked by institutional investors is how recession-proof is this sector? Mm -hmm. Um, And honestly, the answer is it's really recession-proof. And the reason for that is people treat going to a a big event, you know, whether it's a a Beyonce or a Taylor Swift show or a fantastic festival somewhere in the UK or overseas, Mm -hmm. they treat it differently to going out for, uh, you know, a midweek meal or a a drink on a Friday evening. They defend that spending the same way they defend their spending on holidays. So it's one of the last things to get cut on your disposable spending. Um, it's you know it's a lot easier to justify going from you know an expensive gym to a cheaper gym than it is saying to your your friends no I'm sorry I'm not coming to that event anymore I'm just not doing it because people live and die by that kind of cultural capital so we've seen it that almost regardless of when we're putting on these events in the UK um, and even uh, on our international portfolio they're doing very very strong numbers they did good numbers in 23 they're better numbers in 2024 mm-hmm. um, so it feels to me that that is a much less patchy business. That's not to say there aren't challenges with that sector. Yeah, there certainly are. Um, but it's much less patchy. It's much more positive as a generalised story. And we're seeing that because the number of big companies that are now looking at the space, that are investing heavily in the space, both trade players, big private equity houses that are looking at various big deals, they kind of come full circle and gone, actually, we love this. You know, you can buy IP, it's got fantastic cash flows to it. So it all works quite nicely. So whereas you've got this kind of patchy middle ground within hospitality, live entertainment as a whole is doing very, very well, which is great news because I'm heavily invested in it myself. So. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I can kind of almost understand that logically a little bit in the sense that you can imagine if someone, as you say, goes out for dinner, that sort of weekly dinner, and if you go out maybe twice a week for dinner, you're cutting that down to one if you're careful. But these special events that you're just registered, you know, they feel that bit more special, yeah. um, are just things that it's you scar- you're it's remarkable. A it's a scarcity. It's once a year, or it's once every two years, or once every whatever it is, to see that one artist you want to, or see that one show you go to every year. So it's just because it's not available, people are worried about losing it. Uh, and uh, it's an easier way to defend the spending. And I guess post-pandemic, people have had an experience of losing it, even for a short period of time, where you couldn't get to see Beyonce, whatever, or, or that oh, for, f- post, for five years. Post-pandemic was extraordinary. Uh, that first year, and this is a little way back now, that kind of 2021, that first year when you could put shows on, people would have gone to the opening of a letter. Um, it was extraordinary <laughs> what, what demand was like. We put on a show... 
Um, normally we do a two-day show. It, the first two days of that show sold out immediately. We put on a third day, it also sold out. The demand was maybe 50, 60, 70% higher than it otherwise would have been. And it was completely uh, price agnostic. It didn't matter what it was. If you had a good show, people were willing to pay for it. Unfortunately, it's not true the entire time. You've now got to have a good quality <laughs> show and, and be more price sensitive, but there's still great demand out there. And I want to come back to something you mentioned early introduction about, you know, linking with finance and people running these things. And maybe I've read the wrong implication, but there was sort of an implication that you can bring that professional finance thing to people who perhaps aren't so good at the finance side of things. And, you know, I know, I know personally, I do a lot of dancing and I work in dance or world a little bit sometimes. This is my leisure. And sometimes <laughs> I have across people who like, you know, some of the best dancers in the world. I'm thinking, how do you have a career? Because your business skills are like silch. And, and I'm almost like, that's, maybe that's a cliche. But I ca- coming back to you, you sort of your business and live events, how much of an issue is, well, you've got the artist who isn't quite professional on finance running, whatever, because it seems to me some of these big events, they're so big, you can't run them not professionally at all. Yeah, I'm a- You'd be surprised. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think the interesting thing is not so much about um, if we take let's take a let's take a big scale event. Let's imagine you and I are going to set up a brand new festival, and it's going to be based That's around excellent, fantastic. We're in we're only a dance festival. But... <laughs> well, there we go. We're, we're going to do one. This is going to be fantastic. Um, you can set it up, and if you're let's say we're targeting fifty thousand people a day. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of companies that come in, you've got the concept, you've got the vision, you understand what the creative vision looks like, mm-hmm. who can take on all of the professional running. So they'll take on the health and safety aspects. Mm-hmm. They'll make sure that you've got the right number of loos and uh, stages and trucking and all of the bits and pieces that you actually need. Um, so they're, they're, this country is very, very good at putting on professional events. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, if you are the, the creators, the, the creatives, the content owners, you're not necessarily, if you're an amateur in this, getting the best deal. Because you don't know what the best deal is. You don't know what you're meant to be asking, what you're not meant to be asking. Yeah. So for us, it's much more, it's not about taking shabbily run events. Most of them are run by professional service companies and you know great teams. And there's a really deep roster of good quality operators in this country, but often they're run poorly from a finance perspective. So you, you might be missing out on 5% margin here and 3% margin over there. And all of a sudden at the end of it, a show that should be making a million pounds a year is making 300,000 pounds a year, mm-hmm. just because you don't know what you're meant to be asking, what you're not meant to be asking. And it, it, it's it's easy for us. The, the, the learnings we've got, the amount of experience we've got within that space means we can kind of translate the issues and the, the idiosyncrasies of each event and apply good quality lessons over the top of it. Where it becomes challenging, where the people aspect becomes challenging, is where you've got entrepreneurs who are doing this as a lifestyle, where they're madly passionate about the event, but really it's the event for their ego. Um, it's the fact that they are on a festival site and they're the big I am. They've got visions of being the new Michael Evis and wandering around. Sir Michael Evis, sorry, Sir Michael <laughs> Evis. Um, and wandering around a, a field and being patted on the back and saying, isn't this wonderful? And that becomes very challenging to us. Um, and whenever we look at investing in one of these businesses, whether it's buying a minority stake and investing into it or acquiring it for someone else, it's got to be what's the strategy, what's the vision, and what's the exit opportunity? Because I don't want to be stuck in these things forever. There's a lifespan to these things naturally before they get either taken on by a bigger player and plugged into their machine or mm-hmm. pushed on and disappear if they don't work properly. So it's it's much more about finding the right people who've got a, a proper entrepreneurial brain rather than just a creative brain and backing them and putting the infrastructure around them that, that means you can take a good idea into an excellent business. Um, I think, you know, uh, Paul Bedford, my chairman here, uh, you know, if, if, you, if you could boil down his thesis on life, it's that, you know, you back good people over good business plans every single time and you're going to do better. You know, a good person with an okay business plan is going to do an awful lot better 
than an average person with a great business plan uh, because they pivot, they transform, they know what they're doing, they learn, they listen. Um, so yeah, that's that's the challenge within the space. It's not so much poorly run events, it's poorly managed margins and bottom lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Which, then they can be a similar thing, but... Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah, tragically, yeah, that's the sad thing when they definitely, if it's both of them together, then you want to steer well clear. Yeah. Yeah. So you touched on about, you touched on exits there. And I think that's a really interesting topic because we've obviously come out of a period, so with zero interest rates, yeah, and then we had, uh, you know, sort of free, free capital almost, and certainly we had a period of exits in, in the venture space every two years, you know, for, for two to three years, really easy to get really good multiples, et cetera, et cetera. And that's kind of stopped. Um, yeah. And we in our year-end podcast, we speculated that we could see exits maybe returning at some point. When do you see exits returning for this industry? It's an interesting one. Um, so and it's, it's very pertinent for us because mm-hmm. we got to COVID at the point where we should have started to see some exits and then the sector got... Uh, it wasn't so much that exits stopped happening. It was that every conversation you were even remotely having just stopped dead for 18 months. No one was interested at all. I think what's been interesting for us, and we've just gone through this process um, on our portfolios, we do a six monthly review, is there are, you know, there's been a mindset change from the potential buyers, whether they're trade buyers or the private equity buyers. Those multiples have been depressed and I think they're likely to stay fairly depressed. So it's a question of can you trade out of that? Um, so you know, we where we might have seen, let's say, uh, an 8x on EBITDA, uh-huh. um, and, and you've got to remember that for for our sector, um, there's a lot less um, businesses focused on annualised run rates and growth rates and kind of that traditional thin cap technology space. Yeah, it's much more. We're pretty old school. Um, you know, if you're buying a, a restaurant group or you're buying a festival, it's it's what's your profit for the year, guys? You know, what's your free cash flow? Not, you know, how quickly you're growing and how much capital you're going to swallow in the next 18 months, 24 months. So um, I, I do think there's been a bit of, marge, uh, you know, a multiple compression over the last couple of years. So what was maybe a, a 10 has moved to an 8, what was an 8 has moved to a 6. Um, so it's it's been one of those ones where we've had to readjust our kind of value expectations on the basis of current trading. Um, but what I am pleased to see is that there are there is a much more active market out there within certain sectors. Um, live entertainment, live events particularly, has come back and come back strongly. And, and part of that is to do with the fact that there are um, bigger players at the top playing quite political games over what assets they're buying and, and that's kind of feeding down the chain and, and when you say they're playing for... political games what do you mean by that oh well if you i mean you look at some of the biggest players live nation and aeg mm-hmm. are the two largest players within the kind of uh, promoter space yeah. um it's not a particular secret that they they have been basically locked in a a death struggle uh for control over the European market, the uh, uh, American market, the North American market particularly, um, for control of uh, venues and um, artists and tours and festivals. And it's meant that they've ended up in positions where some of them have you know, got close to monopoly-style positions and they've ended up with challenges around competition, the market authorities. Um, they've ended up one of them makes an offer, the other one will make a counter offer just because they don't want the other one to, to buy that asset. Mm. And that's that's fueled the amount of capital available at the mid-market point. So if you're, let's imagine you've got, um, you know, uh, what's Live Nation doing? Maybe 300 festivals, 30,000 events a year, something like that. I don't know, it could be completely off on that one, but it's a really significant piece. Yeah. It's many, multi, it's multiple billion um, dollar turnover business. Um, they're buying up assets maybe in the range of, you know, 50 to 100 million in terms of enterprise value. We're investing in assets, particularly for the EIS business, at between one and five million of enterprise value, which means that the business is at, uh, you know, 50 to 
100, 200, kind of swallow those ones when they get to 10 to 20, and then they get swallowed in turn by Live Nation, the whole thing moves up, and it, and it works, it's quite a holistic approach, as long as you don't really care that, you know, whatever show you go to, it's basically backed by the same four or five promoters. Um, so there's been a political approach within that space. It's also picked up quite a lot of attention from big private equity firms. Um, we helped set up a business called Superstruct back in 2016, early 2017, uh, which was backed by US private equity firm Providence Equity, um, simply to buy up the European festival market. Um, and they've spent well in excess of $200 million. I mean, I, I would guess closer to half a billion dollars buying up festival assets from Devon and Kendall all the way through to um, Budapest and the south of Spain. So they've been buying up any, anything and everything. And it's that kind of approach has started to pay dividends for them. So they started to see those, those margins increasing. It's meant that you know, there, there are interesting players. So, yeah, there's, there's quite a lot of political players at the top who are interested in the space. And it's 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 proving a boon time for smaller players who are looking at doing roll-ups and pushing onto them. So, And, and yeah, and as it, that roll-up thing can be interesting because I think, you know, we've had a couple of guests make the point that roll-ups work because you can buy something at a four or five times EBITDA and you have a business value eight, so you instantly get a multiple uplift, which is kind of a little trick. But there's also... To what extent is there a synergy aspect in terms of you're saying you've got these subcontractors, you know, if you've got, I don't know, Securicore running, right, I don't know, Securicore do, you know, running those facilities, then you, you get a better deal. We've done, we've done a number of um, roll-ups in the past. I'm actually doing another one at the moment. And we never predicate it on multiple arbitrage. I think it's a dangerous game to play. And, and you can see that because... What you might have bought at a 10 and gone, oh, well, it's, I've bought it at a 10 and luckily I know it's going to go to 12 to 15. It's like, well, you only have to have a couple of bad years and everyone goes, your 10's now an 8. If the model is only predicated on multiple arbitrage, you're in a very very dangerous game. Okay. So yeah. um, we've always predicated on there are um, economies of scale, there are synergies to be had. And it's worked very effectively because it, it across lots of different areas. So it can be anything from your ticketing deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so anytime you've ever bought a ticket from uh, a promoter and, and you've gone through Ticketmaster, I'm sure you've, you've been loathed to pay the uh, booking fee, the admin fee, the you know, postage and packaging fee and every other fee going. I have and, both and, hate it and have charged it. So. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. But as, as you will be familiar, but I'm sure some of our listeners won't be familiar with, some of that booking fee gets rebated back to the promoter. Um, so you end up, let's imagine it was a 10 I never fee. had that leverage. <laughs> there you go. You see, this is the point. So if you're charging, if Ticketmaster are charging you 10%, because just nice and easy round numbers, you might expect half of that to come back to the promoter when you get to a certain scale, maybe even slightly more than that. But when you're an individual uh, entity, you might not get anything at all. So if, if I'm uh, building a new platform and I've got four or five or six festivals and I'm selling a quarter of a million tickets every single year, I can go to a Ticketmaster or a C-Tickets. I can pay them off against one each other and say, look, every time I do a new deal, I will plug you in. You're going to give me 50% rebate. You're going to pay me a marketing contribution fee. You're going to give me an upfront ticketing advance of several million pounds and everyone's going to be happy. They win because they get the data flows. They get you know, access to those tickets. We win because we get a great service from them. It's still important to get a good service. And on top of that, we're getting margin. So it's there are really easy wins. And you can do that across lots of different things. It's, uh, it's actually, weirdly, it's hard. You know, you mentioned something like a security deal. It's actually a lot harder to do them on production than it is other areas like ticketing, like insurance, like streaming and platform fees, things like that. Production turns out to be an absolute nightmare. Um, and that's that's solely for really boring reasons like trucking. If I if I've got to have five hundred portaloos, and this is how tedious this business can get, and I'm going to have to truck them from the north of Scotland to the south of England, I'm going to pay almost twenty percent more just to get them delivered. So you can't do a cross portfolio deal. You've got to do them with local suppliers. Um, and that's you know again, it's those little learnings that you kind of you work out and you. 
you have to get. But there are some fantastic synergies to be had at the top end. And the bigger you get, the bigger those synergies get. And, and the bigger you can create, you know, you start off and you've got a business where you're much more interested in offering to ticket players, um, you know, a, a huge package of tickets. And actually, if you get to the level of a superstructure or a live nation, you're not interested in offering to someone else. You buy a ticketing platform. Uh-huh. You keep all of that margin in-house. And that's the long-term end. Any, anytime you're ever doing one of these roll-ups, it's about controlling as much of the value chain as you can, creating uh-huh. an ecosystem of supporting services. And that's where you get that real margin growth. Um, so I think, you know, for us, certain sectors within our space, I think hospitality's got some great opportunities in it to, to do a roll-up in the future. Uh-huh. It's not one I've explored particularly. Live entertainment is something we're doing actively at the moment. Um, but there are some fantastic opportunities to get them. I just, I'm always a bit nervous around multiple arbitrage. Nice if you can get it. It should be a cherry, not the driver. I think the roll-up thing raises a, a question in my mind about how long does it take for a company to develop? Because I think, you know, we spoke a lot of tech people and, and I think, you know, there's a standard thing, you know, a tech company takes a decade to build a good tech company kind of thing. And you might argue if it does well, it's seven or eight years. And, and then if, if it struggles a bit, it, it takes a bit longer. Does this opportunity for roll-up, Maybe does that shortcut that for in the, in the leisure sector? Can you do it quicker? The, the leisure sector as a whole, yeah, I think, you, again, it, it's a bit of a subsector by subsector thing. Yeah. I think it's really hard within hospitality, for example, to go from a standing start to a fully scaled, fantastic business in any short period of time. You need to build it, you need to prove it, you need to have that customer feedback, you need to iterate the product. All the same things you get within tech. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think I think I take um, one of the investments we've got, Watch House Coffee. Um, that one had a fantastically clear vision. So um, this guy I run by um, a man called Roland Horn, who is phenomenally driven, brilliant at what he does, and has a really clear picture in his mind about what he wants the brand to stand for, how he wants to position coffee within the marketplace. Um, where he wants to take the business and where he wants to, to locate those sites. Even with that in mind, and even, you know, he's just raised uh, $10 million to go out and continue the expansion in the UK and also go internationally. So we're opening up our first site in New York this quarter, which is incredibly exciting. But even with that in mind, it's going to take another five years or so. And we, we've been going with, we've been invested in that business now for four years and he'd be running for several years before that to get towards scale. So I don't think within hospitality particularly, 10 years is particularly unusual, you know, to build a fantastic, and if he can get towards his target plan, he'll be at several hundred sites and properly scaled, uh-huh. decent level of EBITDA, a very impressive business by that point. Uh-huh. Um, you'd love to have alongside any tech portfolio. I think within live entertainment and, and possibly within fitness and well-being as well, which is one of our other sectors, it is easier to, to kind of shortcut that and, and to go faster. And that's a question of capital. Um, and, I, you know, I've seen it, um, and come back to festivals because it's something we've seen quite a lot, you get a good kernel of an idea, you understand it, you might get 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 people there in year one. If you can support the infrastructure and the demand is there, you can go from 20,000 people to 60,000 people in year two and 100,000, 150,000 in year three, if you really want to, if you've got the resources, if you've got the energy, if you've got the expertise. So you can get to a phenomenal business very, very quickly um, and, and becomes very attractive. And it's not about, you know, I don't, you know, the exits can be done in three or four years in comparison to needing 10 years to build a good quality business because, it's much more about the, the brand itself and mm-hmm. any buyer, particularly the kind of trade buyers, they're buying the brand. They know how to do all the bits we were just talking about in terms of margin control and all the best deals. They just want the best quality brands with the best quality people. So if, if you can build it quickly, you can absolutely shortcut that one there. And similarly, you know, with, uh, with fitness and well-being, I think if you get the right trend and you can tap mm-hmm. in and you've got the, the capital, some of those are a little bit easier to scale. They don't need... Um, a quite slow and methodical approach to opening up sites. It might be an online or digital one. You know, Peloton's a bad example, but you can see the growth rate in Peloton when it suddenly opened as a digital platform on top of kind of having studios. Yeah. And that can just immediately take off in a way that 
you only see in tech. So I think if you get it right, there are certain sectors that are, that are easy to scale quicker than 10 years. Other sectors are much more traditional and need a good, you know, seven years, 10 years. We try not to invest at day one. So we're not having to wait 10 years. But, you know, if, if you wait 10 years and you get a fantastic return at the end of it, fine. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, if, if I'm going to get 20 or 30% IRR a year, I don't mind ha- keeping my money invested for another couple of no, years. Absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you touched also on profitability. And you, you've set up, you, 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 I think one of the things you've highlighted in this year's portfolio that you set up is that every company is profitable. And I think it's one of the things the industry has been discussing, changing its opinion on, uh, whatever. In that, I, th- I think if you go back three or four years, it's kind of growth at any cost. And profitability was clearly a secondary issue. Let's go for growth. The pendulum has definitely swung, and I think you know we we've, we've seen that perhaps most probably in some big US tech companies like Uber or whatever, where okay, you, you weren't profitable, now you need to be. At the same time, is that risks trading off against growth in terms of if you focus on profitability, you're probably not going to grow as quickly. Is that a direct trade off? Because you talked about perhaps you know um, you pick and take a breath there, Izzy. <laughs> yes, no, I think. I, I think it's an interesting one. I think you're probably right, but I think we look at what we do slightly differently. So mm-hmm. I would argue that we're not trying to be a traditional venture capitalist, mm-hmm. a venture capital fund. Right. Um, we're almost acting a little bit more like a, a private equity style fund. So our returns profile is, I mean, it's not leveraged, but this is very much more, we're looking for steady growth that can generate two or three times return in a five-year period with fewer failures and more solid successes mm-hmm. than, look, we're going to back 20 businesses of which 10 will fail and they'll fail quickly and we could ignore them. And then we're going to focus all of our efforts on the 10 remaining and of which two or three will go phenomenally well and we'll do 20, 30, 40, 50 X and all of a sudden our returns look great. So I think I think there is a there is probably a truth around um, you're not going to see the same growth rates, whether that's in um, EBITDA or, or particularly in terms of revenue. But the, the flip side of that is, particularly in the space we're operating, we we didn't tend to see that level of growth anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not seeing 10, 15, 20% month on month growth rates because you're not scaling scaling like that. You know, if, mm-hmm. if I've got a if I've got a coffee shop chain, I can't do 15 or 20% month on month because I have to be opening up the sites at that rate. Awesome. So it's much more for us about choosing a, a, a model and a structure that works um, and going, look, you've made it work already on five sites. Here's enough capital to get you to 10 sites, at which point the free cash flow means you can open up two, three, four sites a year on just that free cash flow, roll it up, get it to 20 or 30 sites and sell it. It's a bit old school, um, but we're kind of a bit old school anyway. It's fine for us. It works. I don't. I think. I think sitting there and, and you know, revenue figures and growth figures like that are are often for show. Um, and we had it. You know, we had listen. Mm-hmm. We had it in our portfolio. We had a we had a business called Borrow a Boat, and it was very much the strategy of growth at any cost. Mm-hmm. And it made a number of strategic acquisitions where it was effectively buying unprofitable revenue streams. Um, and the point was, can we continue to scale this to the point where we become the dominant player? Um, can we get to a point where the model does start to work? You know, it's, it's very much the kind of Uber or Airbnb model where it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And, oh, look, suddenly it does work because we've got enough revenue flowing in the tiny margins work. And we didn't get there. Um, and it fell apart because it couldn't raise capital and it couldn't support itself. And, you know, cash is king. Mm-hmm. Um, and even profit isn't isn't king. I mean, you can sit there and go, look, we've got, we're ever profitable, but we've got too big a debt to service after the, below the line and therefore mm-hmm. the business falls over. But yeah. you're just that much closer to real solid business when you start focusing on profit. So I, I, I'm delighted that other people are starting to focus on what we've, what we've kind of started to do, mm-hmm. um, what we've always tried to do a little bit of, but yeah, we're just being a bit noisier about it. I mean, is 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 that any issues around messaging, or is there any challenges around messaging in terms of that? Because 
you've got if you look at most of the rest of the EIS industry, say there, you know, the, there's numerous tech, deep tech, B two B SaaS, even even consumer SaaS or whatever, and, and they're all got this different profile from you where you're saying actually we are doing something a little bit different, and when you target investors, that's something that's got to message correctly. I I, I did a a pitch to a bunch of um, financial advisors yesterday mm-hmm. um, and they sort of asked, oh, how do you see yourself fitting into the industry? And I've always said we're a diversifying tool. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're not going to, you're, you're very unlikely if you've got £100,000 a year to invest in EIS. Lucky you. That's very, very good. Congratulations mm-hmm. for a start. Well done. Um, but if you've got £100,000 a year to invest in EIS, you're not likely to give £100,000 a year to us. Because measure as a whole is what ten percent of the economy, something like that. You're missing out on ninety percent of the rest of the economy, which is also going to be growing quite rapidly. So we've always sort of sat there and gone, look, if you've got a lot of tech, if you've got a lot of uh, generalist players, and you want some expertise within this space, and you want it with a little bit different uh, of a different risk profile, that's when you should start to consider diversifying tools, and, and we can be one of those tools. So I think it's not. I don't think it needs us to reiterate the message particularly. I think it's always something we've sort of said. It's it's never going to be we're the one person you give all of your money to. Um, but I, I do think I think the industry needs to take a and I'm you know I'm sure it's true in EIS because there's not that much transparency around valuations, but it's certainly true in VCT uh-huh. um, where there's kind of tech-led VCTs. They need to have a long hard look at themselves in terms of the valuations they're supporting and, and what the end exit value is going to be because you know um, there's going to be a lot of growth companies that are predicated on well we raised this multiple originally when it was doing this revenue and we've multiplied that revenue by the new level of revenue and look we're up 30 percent or 40 percent and i think that's it's a dangerous place to be so um, well, I, I think we've seen one or two of those chickens coming home to roost in the past yeah. few months anyway there have been uh, a couple of very prominent write downs um, not, not. Let's be very clear. I'm not. I don't want it to happen. I don't. You know what? What you really want is a fantastically stable, tax-efficient bank of fund managers who are scrupulous, whose uh, you know interests are aligned to the uh, interests of their investors, who make fantastic investments. Because it is a rising tide raising all all boats. It's you know if, if the market's doing well, we all tend to do well. Um, you don't want there to be wholesale failures, but. Um, all you can do is point out, look, we're slightly different from this. If you've got a lot of exposure to the more traditional model, try something new. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and certainly there's a couple other differences which I wanted to pick up on, which is maybe a little inside baseball, but um, I, I think they're really, certainly I, I think they're really interesting in that you ha- this year have set up an EIS and you sort of said six months in advance, here's the companies we're going to invest in very much. Yes. Um, which is really unusual because most of the guys sort of say, right, you're in our deal flow, you'll get whatever we're doing in the next 18 months. So I've got sort of two questions. Why did you do that? We did it. We actually started our fund by doing that. So it's not so much a, a new thing for us as a return to what we previously did. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of the reason we did it was because you know, at the beginning we were talking about there's there's nervousness, there's scepticism around the space and the sector as a whole as a leisure. Um, I think the, 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 the easiest way to dispel that scepticism is to, to say, don't worry about what you think of the leisure sector. Look at the actual companies you're going into. Kick the tires on them. Have a conversation about them. I'll go and visit them if you're in the area. Um, see what they're about and back those businesses. And I think, you know, what's what's interesting to me is there is a subset of investors who, um, young, a lot of them are younger investors who have grown up with uh, Cedars and Crowdcube and, and are active in managing their money. And have now got to the point where they are, are, they've got professional advisors as well behind them, but they still want to have that visibility on what they're putting their money really into. And it's not just you're backing me or Paul or Adam or any of my team here um, to go and select businesses for you. You're backing us to support these businesses and make them as good as they possibly can be. And I think that's a, that's a kind of slightly different message. And it, it's just, it's not just about um, objection management um, where you've got, you know, advised clients who go, I, I just don't know what's going on. I don't like it. I don't, I don't trust it. Um, 
which is it's certainly a helpful tool. But I, I think it's it's just one way we can stand out from the crowd and, and, it, and it allows us to be very clear on what we're intending on investing into. Um, we, we've always, every year, we've done um, a series of deals pre-agreed and effectively we'll part fund them at the beginning of the deal and then the rest of the money comes in in March, April time or spread across the six-month period. So literally nothing's changed from an internal perspective other than being more transparent and open with the the investor base, um, and I think I think you know it's hopefully it's a positive. Yeah, yeah, and you touched on something that that seemed to me almost like a little bit of a challenge because if you're lining up deals six months in advance in a market that things are changing sometimes very rapidly, so how do you get a business that a is willing to wait six months for money? When most of them, when they start fundraising, I thought the, the day they start fundraising is like they've usually got six months of runway yeah. at tops. Um, and secondly, how do you handle, well, if the company either goes ballistic or, or, or suddenly struggles in a six-month period, how do you actually adjust for that? Well, I think the, the first one is, is a bit easier because uh, because we're only going for profitable businesses, mm-hmm. they don't have that ticking clock, or they shouldn't have that ticking clock. Okay. So you, you've always got a little bit more freedom, and it's it's kind of why, you know, from my perspective, we're – we're only really talking about uh, now to businesses that are default alive. Uh-huh. So if they raise no capital, they'll survive because they're generating enough cash to cover their interest payments, tax, everything else like that. Um, it makes it a lot easier for us to have those conversations and say, look, the reason you're choosing us is, yes, we can give you cash, but we can also help you. You know, We've got proper expertise. We can introduce you to the right people. We can start building those relationships. And quite often we're working with these people before we've even done the deal. So you're, you're working on the strategy, the structure, the introductions. You, you start building that proper relationship before you do it. So we've not found securing those deals particularly challenging um, because of the expertise we can add. And, and quite often we're talking to people first as advisors and then as potential investors rather than as potential investors first and foremost. So it does become a little bit easier from that side of things. It's not always true. Um, but it, it's certainly been helpful. And I think, I think you know, more importantly, the fact that they should be able to wait six months. If they can't, if they go, no, no, in three months, we're going to run out of money, then there's something wrong with the model anyway. It doesn't fit what we're trying to invest into. And mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a nice red flag that I can kind of wave and go, well, thanks very much. We're not interested. The second point around uh, how we manage them, if, if it goes ballistic or more usually if it goes wrong, we're very, we're very clear and we're very open with the investors. These are the companies we're intending on investing into as long as they continue to hit their targets. Um, if they don't, if they underperform, and we, you know, what we tend to do, and certainly what we're doing with this one is um, we're allotting all of the money at the back end of March. Uh, so we did a previous round of due diligence back in September on these companies. We're now having to redo the due diligence process, which is a lot easier because you're just asking for updates and actual yeah. forecasts become actuals. If they do underperform, if any of them underperform, then either it's, look, it's minor, minor underperformance and therefore the deal slightly tweaks. If it's major underperformance or major overperformance, the deal either ends or disappears. I, you know, I'm, I'd rather sit in a room with an investor and go, I, I loved that fifth company or I loved that sixth company, why haven't you invested in it? And sit there and go, it said it was going to make half a million pounds of profit. It lost half a million pounds. We didn't feel it was a sensible investment deal to do. Then we said we were most likely to invest in that company, and we did because we didn't want to disappoint you. Um, because they're going to be a lot more disappointed when they run out of money and disappear, and we've lost all of it. Then, mm-hmm. yeah, kept their money safe. So um, it's listen, it's it, you know, it's one of those ones you try to avoid the situations where there's a lot of ambiguity around the end result. There's always a bit of tweaking and toing and froing and reforecasting. But we're hopeful we haven't got any situations like that at the moment. All right. I hope so too, for your sake, and um, <laughs> for investors, because that means you—you—it's it's nice to get everything right. So I'll—I'll—I'll I'll, I'll watch that with interest because I'm—I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm, I'm certainly curious to see how this different deal structure sort of goes in the market. Yeah. Uh, but what I'd like to do now is move on to our favourite questions. So I'm going to skip one because it'll be the same answer as last time. I think you've already uh, um, answered it as well, and, but. What I'd like to start with is what was the most recent publicly announced investment uh, you made and why did you make it? Uh, it was into a business called Farmer J. Um, Farmer J is a fast casual 
dining restaurant or kind of um, food retailer. Um, and it's targeted at, it was originally set up by an ex-investment banker, uh, Jonathan Recanati. I can never pronounce his surname. I will apologise profusely the next time I see him. Um, he, uh, so Jonathan set up uh, Farmer J uh, because he was bored of having disappointing food options when he was working late at night. And he's effectively created something you go in, you choose your protein option, you choose your side options. It's kind of 12 pounds for your, your lunch or 15 pounds for your, your evening meal. It fits within a lot of those kind of investment bank, corporate finance advisor budgets when they're staying later than 8 p.m. Um, and it has done phenomenal trade. Uh, and they're growing very, very rapidly. They've worked out that people want good quality, fresh food. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, what's quite interesting is when you look at that space, we, we're just down the road from Leatherlane Food Market. Um, and you can get any food from your Ethiopian food to your Korean fried chicken, everything else you want. And it's round every single day, come rain or shine, with people who want good quality, fresh food. But actually, there are the massive food deserts in this, you know, in, in major cities where it's, if you want something, it's Pret, or it's mm -hmm. Eat, or it's something, you I know. Think especially around the city in London. Yeah, um, and that's fine, but that's not freshly made, you know, a, a nice fresh chicken with a salad. It's a pre-packaged salad or whatever. And they're good quality, and they work, and you know, nothing wrong with them at all. That's really struck a chord and, and is doing phenomenally well. So we, we, we gave them a, a small amount of money, end of last tax year. So that's the last last investment we made. The rest of them we are building towards the end of this tax year. That sounds good. I shall maybe have to keep my eye out next time I'm in London. <laughs> Please do, yeah. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. Uh, well, we've touched on... I, mean, I think the borrow boat one is the one that sticks in my mind most, um, as that one fell apart in twin, uh, sort of May, June 2023, so was, mm -hmm. you know, six months ago, seven months ago. I think, you know, the, the lesson we all took from that uh, was very much that refocus on default alive rather than default dead. Mm -hmm. That it was a business that had successfully raised capital six or seven times before, and as soon as the capital markets dried up, it's just on borrowed time. Um, you are purely at the whim of any other potential investors who can put cash into it. And that's a very unpleasant place to be. So it's it's kind of, it's a big driver behind why we want to focus on that, that very much. It's profitable. It de-risks you in a very significant way. Um, and it's an expensive lesson to learn. Um, and it's a, it's a real pity, but um, yeah. yeah. Well, I, th I think every investment mistake feels like an expensive lesson to learn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, tragically, yes. it does. Um, and I, I can speak from experience in that as well. Um, so the EIS and the VCT industry that we work in is great in many ways, but it's not perfect. Is there anything you'd like to change about it? I'd love to make it easier to launch a VCT. Um, um, and I don't mean in the sense of I'd love to make it cheaper to launch a VCT. I would. That would be great. Yeah. But I think one of the big challenges we have got um, is that it's very, very difficult to break into the cartel of established VCT players. I'd love to see there being some sort of, you know, when, when they had limited life VCTs, the rules were way too in favour of, you know, um, creating special distributable reserves and paying out dividends out of capital and so on and so forth, which allowed to kind of that constant revenue stream. But it enabled new VCTs to pop up and pay capital to, to, to players and, and do that. And I'd love to see some sort of uh, measure where a new fund manager has a right to set up a VCT and use capital to pay dividends for the first three years. Mm -hmm. So it gets up to speed, gets up to running, and you have that tool to compete with the bigger boys who go, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be paying a 5% a dividend every single year. Because otherwise, you're going to end up with a bit of a cartel. And I think it, it, it is... It is disappointing because there are some fantastic fund managers out there that, that would love to do it. Um, so that, that's what I'd love to see on that. I'd also, on EIS, I would love to see the administration a little bit slicker. Um, you know, when we, I'd love to have some sort of approved fund that's not a knowledge intensive fund. We, we'd love to have one uh -huh. because we allot everything. I'd love to be able to send our investors one EIS certificate um, because the number of times they call it when they've only got eight of the nine or 
whatever happens to be, or they've lost two of them. It's it's incredibly frustrating for us. It's incredibly frustrating for the investor. It's frustrating for everyone. So I'd love to find a, a nicer, neater solution for that as well. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm, and I like your VCT idea a little bit. I mean, certainly we've seen a couple of people launch VCTs. There's, yeah. there's, there's, there's at least one new offer uh, out there at the moment. Uh, we've also seen a couple of people look at it and not proceed. And I, uh, I know oh, we did it. We, I mean, let's be very clear. We did it. And we got to the point of going, we were, we were, we just weren't sure we were going to get to a, a VCT that would actually be investor friendly effectively. Um, you know, we, we might've raised three or 4 million pounds, but the fees chew through that is a horrible structure. And the pushback we got from so many different clients was, I like the dividend stream. I like to know that I'm getting some income and you can't guarantee me a proper level of income for the next couple of years. So I'm going to go with someone established. Um, you know, and, and I have so much respect for those who've managed to launch a new, a brand new VCT. Mm-hmm. I think it's fantastic. It's great we've got some new players in there. I just, it would be nice if it was a little bit easier. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so far we've seen maybe one get to what I would regard critical mass. And I think we've got another couple who probably have the, have the sort of distribution that they will get there. Um, yeah, but yes, I I, th- I would definitely like to see more VCTs out there because I think, while I wouldn't call it cartel, I think it could be more competitive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cartel is a very mean word. I couldn't think of a better word for it. It's not a legally defined term. Don't you worry. I'm not saying they're actually acting as a cartel. <laughs> no, they're definitely not because I've spoke. I speak with enough of them to know that. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, I, I, I'm sure they're not. I'm sure that there's there's a, a fierce rivalry between them. It just it feels like a closed shop. There we go. That's a better phrase. Yes. Yes. No. 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 There is that structure that does make it that bit harder to launch a new VCT, yeah. um, and and then for a long time it stopped people entirely. So, um, so as regular listeners know, I'm an avid reader and always looking out for new ideas for books. Is there anything out there you like and would recommend? I'm reading a book uh, called, sorry, I'm just trying to remember the name of the author. Um, if This Is a Man by Primo Levi. He's a, I, I read a book of his called The Periodic Table years and years ago. It's a collection of short stories, um, autobiographical, most of them anyway. Uh, he is, or was um, a chemist um, based in Italy. He was a partisan in the Second World War. He got captured, uh, taken to Auschwitz. He's, he's a very interesting writer, a very clever writer. And I found, I, I'd sort of been on my list of books to read, if this is a man, because it's, a, it's a, his account of being in one of the camps. Um, it is not like reading. It is not bedtime reading, mm-hmm. I put it that way. Um, but it is, it is an interesting book and uh, very, very well written. Um, so, yeah, that would be my, my bleak book recommendation of, of the week. Um, I'm trying to think if I've got a lighter book I've I've read recently oh I read uh, The Body by Bill Bryson that's much more of a holiday book it's just I I don't know if you've ever read any of Bill Bryson I read the one he did about homes and the house oh that was really good as well yeah 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 yeah. Um, he he, he writes about the body and and, you know every aspect of your body and the things you don't know he's just it's a fun nice read so there's two aspects two ends of the spectrum something nice and something much more harrowing I don't know what it says about me, but I'm more intrigued by the bleak one than Bill Bryson. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe maybe my mood will pick up soon. Good. I hope so. What do you wish you knew when you started venture capital that you know now? What do I wish? I wish I I I knew that we'd have to kiss quite as many frogs before we find our our prince or princess. Mm -hmm. Um, I think when I started, um, I assumed we'd see fully formed good deals every day of the week and it was just picking and choosing. And in reality, it's a lot of sifting, a lot of wasted meetings and you just have to pick yourself up, go again, pick yourself up, go again. And that that goes for capital raising and doing deals on both sides of the coin. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yeah, so I think think if I'd known that, I'd been much more better prepared for it in the early part of my career. Now I'm I'm fully used to it. You kind of, I expect most of the time. I expect it's going to be a terrible meeting, so that when it's even slightly good, I'm delighted. By the end of it. <laughs> and, um, so try to be, try to be negative and then become positive about it. Yeah, I, 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 I've noticed that numerous times. Where if you, you will, if you go in with low expectations, you're more likely to beat them than if you go in with high expectations. The, the one I find extraordinary though is on the flip side. When you're going to a meeting, so I, regardless of whether I've got low expectations or high expectations, I try to be positive and friendly. And, yes, yeah, know, interesting. 
I go to some meetings and we sat with a, a very well-known uh, fund manager fairly recently looking to um, JV on one of our investments. He didn't smile. He barely looked at us. He was on his phone the entire time, not interested. You get away going, that was a waste of an hour and a half of our time. You get a message two days later going, loved it, fantastic, would love to do a deal. You kind of go, what? <laughs> You're the world's <laughs> hardest person to read. <laughs> so, yeah, I um, maybe I should also learn to read people better. Maybe that's, the, that's my New Year's uh, objective. I don't know. It just sounds like there's a there's sort of two things going in there. Maybe maybe the guy's just very very good at multitasking. It must be, or someone else in the room liked it, and he's just said, "Oh yeah, I I agree. I liked it as well." Who knows? Great. So, if anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing at Edition, where should they go? Uh, they can go to the website uh, editioncapital.co.uk, or um, they can email me uh, harry.hartfield at editioncapital.co.uk. Just email i'm always interested i I, also as i've literally just said i'll have a meeting with very low expectations and be (laughs) delighted when it's fun and interesting so there you go well i can certainly say i have found today's conversation fun and interesting so thank you very much for coming on harry and the only thing i say brian is that i because i've done this before i had high expectations and you've met them and exceeded them so don't you worry but uh, oh. <laughs> yeah I'll start with low expectations this time i'm afraid thank you very much i'm sorry that i couldn't accept those but uh, i'm glad we got there yeah thank you brian thanks for having me on again i hope you enjoyed that discussion as much as i did it's great to see how things have recovered since the pandemic and how an investment philosophy evolves over time as usual, you can get full show notes with links at harmonico.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast and all good podcast servers and players through the link in the show notes. If you like what you hear, then please give us a review with lots of stars on your favourite podcast app. We can be contacted at inquiries at harmonico.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks' time. <laughs>